0: Dr. Jones, again we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. Dr. Jones, again we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. Hi, welcome to episode 25 of Paranormal Blip. And this is the Close Encounters of the Third Kind review, so that's what most of the show is going to be about, me talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and I'll get into why I've chosen the director's cuts to watch and review shortly, but first of all we're going to go into the news, and then at the end of the episode we have got quite an interesting archive as well. So I hope you're all well, and um, surviving all of the various you know, troubles <laughs> that life brings. Life brings, yes. Um, it's nice to talk to you again. Hello. Hi, I'm back. Anyway, here are the blomps. So before we go into the news, just to quickly ask you to uh, get on to Twitter Twitter uh, dot com slash paranormal blip and follow me there we've got around about 1200 people doing that so far so that's very good just above that so that's exciting isn't it yes and i am putting on polls on twitter quite a lot more than i used to and trying to engage as much as possible you know being a very uh, busy person is never always possible or easy to do that but you know i do try don't i yes i do try and instagram is totally forgotten by me but i do know that quite a lot of my very close friends are on instagram and i always feel quite guilty that i don't uh check their posts out more you know you know it's terrible isn't it instagram guilt insta guilt but uh instagram post is um what is it paranormal underscore blip underscore podcast i think yeah Uh, But I've put a link of both of those in the episode description. So if you're interested in, you know, not just the episodes, but kind of contacting me or anything else, then please do follow there. Thank you. So the news this week is very interesting uh, language around um, these various acts that are being uh, kind of written up at the moment to be passed later on in the year. And Liberation Times, Christopher Sharp. Has got an excellent quote from Lou Elizondo, so I'll read out the quote now. The total uh, full um, Liberation Times article is uh, linked in the episode description on this on this, uh, you know, in the podcast episode twenty five. So here is Lou: the congressional language, you see, was made a reality in large part due to the tireless efforts of one man, Mister Christopher Mellon. Furthermore, we are also grateful for the coverage, uh, sorry for the courage and tenacity of key people in both the Senate and the House of Representatives and their staff. This is truly another historic moment for our nation and proof that Ronald Reagan was right and that this topic could actually help unite us and not divide us. A case in point is the bipartisan way these bills have been coordinated among party members We normally don't agree on very much, but in this case, have decided to tackle one of the most controversial and historically challenging topics together. This is a proud moment for our country, and I encourage our our leaders of other nations to follow suit. So you hear that, Rishi Sunak? You hear that, Liz Truss? Follow suit. I agree with Mr Elizondo and then uh, Christopher Sharp at the Liberation Times has embedded Reagan talking about, but we don't need to hear Reagan, do we? Talking about that, talking about, do you remember he did a thing in the the United Nations saying, I firmly believe that if we were taken over by the aliens, that we'd all come together and we realise that, you know, we're all humans after all, innit? That's my my Reagan impersonation. Quite spot on, isn't it? Yeah. So that's uh, interesting. So that language is going through, and it's, um, they've set up a, pl- a way for uh, people to give them confidential inf- information confidentially, you, know, which is quite, uh, quite a thing. And also the other big news as well is that the Pentagon establishes an office to track UFOs in space. The office will also attempt to study objects that appear to travel between air, space and water. And this is, I'm reading from a space.com article that is also in the episode uh, description. And it starts with, The Department of Defense has created an office to track unidentified objects in space and air, underwater, or even those that appear to travel between these domains. UFOs, or as they're now known, unidentified aerial phenomena, have been receiving newfound levels of government scrutiny, not seen in decades. Multiple hearings and classified briefings have taken place in the halls of the U.S. Congress in recent months. And many lawmakers have expressed concern that America's airspace may not be as safe as we think due to the many sightings of unidentified objects military aviators and other armed forces personnel have reported. And it goes on like that. So basically, the the new guy in charge is uh, Sean Kirkpatrick. And they put a statement out. They've renamed it. It's not AIMSOG or whatever, however people used to say that. It's now ARO, but quite a long A. ARO. The office is now known as the all-domain anomaly resolution office. Resolution, meaning, uh, what does that mean? Like resolution in terms of seeing things or resolution in terms of Coming to a finality, because I think you know we well, can't bloody see them, and we're just at the beginning of it, you know. But anyway, Arrow is quite nice, isn't it? I suppose check up W on the end of it. I mean, spell it right if you are going to spell Arrow. Anyway, Arrow—that's the new name—and um, yeah, there we go. So it goes on and on that article, but it's uh, worth reading. So that's in the link now. I also this isn't well; it is news. I'm definitely going to uh, talk about it in the news section, and it's something that's happened very recently, like literally only the last couple of days. Engaging the phenomena, um, what's his name? James Yandoli. He has just uh, last day or so put up a an absolutely incredible interview. With Jim Semivan, it's it's so brilliant. I can't recommend this interview enough. It uh, covers everything basically. It covers metamaterials. It covers uh, Bob Lazar. It covers experience experiences. It covers a whole host of different things. And Jim Semivan, who's now working with To the Stars Academy, and they it talks about secret machines talks about the content that they're doing kind of entertainment wise, It talks through that as well, the To The Stars uh, kind of problems they've had in relation to COVID and kind of working out what they're going to be doing. Um, it's absolutely like, it's unbelievable. It's so good. It's packed full of stuff. It's quite long. It's two hours long, I think, or nearly two hours, but it is absolutely incredible stuff. Like a phenomenal interview, and James is a brilliant interviewer, that guy. Um, you know, I'd love to... He started doing this New York UFO Supper Club with um, J. Christopher King. I don't live anywhere near New York, but I would love to. Um, can you come to South Devon? Come to South Devon, for Christ's sake. It's better than New York. The beaches are better. Like, there's no question about that. And it's certainly hotter <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> Well, um, so just come to South Devon. There's nice restaurants near where we live. Yeah, easy. Oh, lovely. Have like a, you know, some whatever you want. Any restaurant type in the world, is available in South Devon. So that's my appeal to James and and Jay. It's not going to happen, is it? No, but you know, I can, I can wish. I can dream. Oh, now can you remind me to mention um, when you wish upon the star a star later on yeah please just remind me please thank you so anyway um Jim Semivan absolutely incredible interview it's in the episode description so check it out right now we're going to talk close encounters so close encounters of their kind now I imagine that most of you have watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind and probably most of you know it really well. I haven't seen it for about five years or so. So I watched it again in the last couple of days just to kind of, you know, refresh my memory. And, um, I mean, it's just brilliant. I would say it is my favourite film that deals with the phenomena and especially any kind of UAP Uh, kind of aspects to the phenomena Um, better than anything that I can think of I put a poll up a couple of days ago last weekend and I I said to to people, do you like it better than Arrival and people do like it better than Arrival but I also asked, which I really love Arrival, I think Arrival is is extraordinary, I mean absolutely brilliant film and I also asked for people to comment on, you know, what, what else do you like and people mentioned a couple of really good ones, including some that I've never seen before, which I need to check out. Um, but some real classics like The Day the Earth Stood Still and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but also there's another one as well, Midnight Special, which I think is very, very good and hints to a kind of, um, you know, shadow biosphere type deal going on, which is something that Jim Semivan says uh, in terms of the, uh, in this incredible interview that I'm still thinking about, <laughs> James Iandoli, um, he talks about, you know, maybe the phenomena is a part of our environment. I mean, it's something we've discussed many times here, many times. The idea, you know, I mean, it's an established thing, but Jim Semervan talks about that. You know, the idea that basically, you know, some people are more sensitive than others and some people have a kind of a way into perceiving, um, Experiences that others don't, but essentially that it isn't visitations from another world or whatever. It's just that they've always been here, but some of us are kind of going to access parts of it at some point. So that's and and Midnight Special has got that about it, hasn't it? It's a very good film, Midnight Special. Yeah, I really like it, but it's not Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Now, in brief the thing about close encounters is that it was it came out uh november 1977 it was about 6 months after uh, or not even less than that i think after star wars came out and star wars you know as you know was a massive a massive hit and then the pressure was on uh for spielberg whose Jaws in 1975 basically created the blockbuster, the Hollywood blockbuster, the pressure was on from the studio, Columbia, to hurry it up, uh, not Georgie. That's the other one. Hurry up, Stephen. Hurry you up. Have you done your film yet? Always pestering Paul Spielberg to finish his film. And he'd been working in it for years. He'd been working on the script famously, Richard Dreyfuss essentially lobbied for the job of the lead actor um, uh, when he was on the set with with uh, Jaws. You know that incredibly difficult um, shootings uh, that uh, Jaws went through, and uh, production that Jaws went through, and um, you know he would like slag off all the actors and say, "Oh, you what do you want? What are you looking for? is Somebody." Uh, playful and childish and young at heart uh not like al pacino al pacino's a fucking douchebag like, <laughs> not like jack nicholson Have you lost your mind jack nicholson's a psychopath they're gonna hear jack you want someone like me like you know and it worked unbelievably this lobbying worked it's incredible isn't it so he he got the. I love Jack Nicholson, by the way. He was, I was just doing an impression of of um, you know a, a naughty man, but it worked. The naughtiness worked, so that's good, isn't it? And he's really good in the film. But anyway, but b- what the point is that it took him. Uh, you know, the the pressure was on. Get it out there. Get it out there. So they released it, and he basically wasn't happy with what they released. You know, the visual effects, Douglas Trumbull. I mean, absolutely extraordinary, brilliant work, groundbreaking work. Um, but yet, you know, if they'd only had a couple more months, then, you know, they could have done things that they wanted to do that they basically didn't have time to do, you see. So that meant that a couple of years later, he revisited it and he did a deal with um, uh, Colombo. Is that what it's called? <laughs> Columbia. Um, this, this company, the studio, saying, OK, listen, pal, you want to make more money out of um, Close Encounters. I get that. I get it. I know it's all about money for you guys. But for me, it's about art. So I'll do a deal. You say that there's this big, you know, kind of um, public outcry that we didn't go into the ship. I'll shoot inside the ship. I'll shoot inside the ship. And I'll get Ricky back, Dicky Ricky, Dreyfus back. You know, we'll shoot something. Yeah, I don't want to see that. But if you want that, I'll give you that. But you've got to be something in return, pal. And what you're going to give me in return is I'm going to sh- get this, pal. I'm going to put a boat in a desert and I'm going to have helicopters and it's going to be incredible. And we'll get old um, Frankie Truffaut back. And Bob Balaban back, and we'll get the old crow back, and they can find a boat in the desert. How cool would that be? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. So they did that. So they made another version a couple of years later. And then, and he thought, well, okay, like it's not my vision, you know? I wanted the boat in the desert, and I got that. But I think the idea of going uh, onto The ship, basically, I've spoiled the film. If you haven't, listen, uh, I should have said that in, oh, never mind. But, I mean, you should know what happens in Close Encounters. If you don't know what happens in Close Encounters, stop listening now, right? Go and watch Close Encounters. Or, like I was saying the other day with um, the other film that I reviewed, Film Junk, I often never watch those movies, and I always love the reviews, so there we go. So, just keep listening if you want. But basically, they've, you know, shot in the film. I've never seen the shooting in the mothership at the end because I believe that um, Spielberg is correct. Yeah. I like the idea that it's up to our imagination. It's the perfect ending, you know. Now, weirdly enough, then, um, in interviews when he was publicizing the film, which was a massive event, you know, and it was a big, big, huge hit, as we all know. Um he said, Oh yeah, well I can't see any sequels for Jaws, but I can see a sequel for Close Encounters. And of course that never came about. But then of course a couple of years later, or five years later, in nineteen eighty two, E. T. came out. So, you know, and of course he's always kind of been in this in this space and even now he's still kind of working in this space a little bit. It's space meaning in, you know, kind of UFO stuff. So that, so there's and then four years later then, 1997, they made another, oh, sorry, 30 years later, they gave him the opportunity to do the director's cut. Okay. So that is the director's cut. And that then went back into the cinemas. Uh, oh no, I think it also came out on Blu-ray. And that's the one I, I watched and I saw it on Amazon I just paid uh, £3 or whatever to rent it for 48 hours and that's how I saw it on Amazon okay so you can buy it to rent but this is the director's cut that I'm talking about and I do think that this is the vision that Spielberg had you know the effects are complete but also it ends before he gets on the mothership yeah before what's his name Sammy is it I can't remember the character's name but before Richard Dreyfuss gets on the mothership. So that's the version that I'm going to be talking about. Now, um, Spielberg was interested in UFOs. He'd never seen a UFOs, never had an experience, but he was really interested in it. And in the archive, I'm going to uh, include a little snippet from a very good interview where he talks about J. Allen Hynek. Now, J. Allen Hynek was the guy that was working for the government to I mean I imagine that virtually everyone who listens to this knows who Enoch is but basically if you don't know then he was um, ordered to do a port or kind of asked to do a report that would you know just debunk all of the uh, UFO sightings and experiences and there was a certain percentage that he couldn't debunk and he got really interested in this area and a young dashing extraordinarily beautiful um jack valet was working with hynek and valet then hynek then met um spielberg and the archive uh, interview that i'm putting on at the end of the episode kind of goes into you know into it a bit more, doesn't it yeah but basically valet met spielberg and according to valet in in his book which book is it? I think it begins with P, that book. Yeah, Dimensions. Dimensions. doesn't begin with P at all, does it? It begins with D. Dimensions, case casebook of alien contact, which came out in 1988. Apparently, in that, he talks about how um, Spielberg was so taken by the young valet that he thought, I'm going to cast the Frenchman to be the lead inquirer. And he's very Valet-like, the character as well. I, I like to think that Valet is like that. Um, yeah, so that's good, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, so, so he's really interested in it. Now, I do know that um, in the kind of publicity around the director's cut, he was saying, oh, well, I kind of like, I used to say that I didn't believe and I didn't not believe, but I was kind of somehow in the middle, you know, a kind of objective observer, observer, a neutral observer. Um, but now I'm slightly more sceptical because of the lack of kind of photographs, and you know we have got mobile phones with cameras and videos uh, equipment on them. So where's the where's the evidence now? Obviously, everything has changed since two thousand and seventeen, and I haven't been able to find any interviews where people are seriously asking him, okay, what's going on now, then, pal? You know, because in two thousand uh, in in nineteen ninety seven. When you brought out the director's cut, you thought this. Well, now the world has changed because we've got video, you know, um, authenticated, verified, Department of Defense um, outleted video of extraordinary, um, you know, vehicles moving in unusual, uh, impossible ways. So what do you think about this, Spielberg? So it would be really interesting. And if you know, by the way, contact me on Twitter. And, t- and like, you know, throw me the link, please uh, But it would be really interesting to see Spielberg's take on it now You know, really interesting But certainly at the time, he was a believer And he wrote the script And then, you know, as you'll hear That then kind of Heineck, um helped advise, you know So what we've got here essentially is a story That evolved, uh, revolves around this kind of repairman type figure And he... Uh, is coming home. Oh, uh, no, no, sorry. He's 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 out on a kind of a, a funny day, a funny night, where I think the power is down, and he essentially kind of comes across a, uh, you know, a, a, a UAP. A UAP. Um, he has an experience which involves the UAP. Uh, hovering over his um, you know, his his truck and it's you know, very disturbing like everything kind of flies around the cabin of the truck everything is kind of massively brightly lit by this huge great big beam of light and his face is burnt um, by the light as well um, and then uh, the UFO leaves, and there's others as well, and they're being chased by the police. And Roy, who's the name of the character, Roy, chases the UFOs, and it's extraordinary. And then he becomes uh, obsessed with it, and he has this image in his mind that um, you, that he can't get out of. Okay. So that's the story. And I'll come back to the Roy story. But as well as the Roy story, you've then got this other character played by, um, you know, what's his name? Truffaut, who is, you know, a celebrated film director, Truffaut, Francois Truffaut. And he is on a kind of, um, well, like a kind of global search, a world search um, or a world tour, if you like, going from place of encounter to place of encounter and trying to kind of piece together these things. Now some encounters we hear about, we see, um, that um I think his uh character's name is Lacombe, I think. Lacombe. So Lacombe isn't at there's this brilliant scene in this um air traffic control tower. This uh, is that what they're called? Air tower, yeah? And like, you know, there's kind of like the radar images and the bleeping and oh, I haven't played the trailer. Like, listen, I'm going to play the trailer now. I'm cutting in to play the trailer. Now, this is I've edited the trailer because trailers are always really bombastic, aren't they? And um, I've taken out this like two seconds kind of splurge, which is totally unnecessary. Just this music splurge. So I've edited that out, but this is most part of the trailer because the splurge was far too loud, you know. So just prepare yourself because the trailer is a little bit loud. But here is, and I've got the episode uh, in the episode description. I've got the actual link, you know, to the trailer. So if you will watch it, not just listen to it. But um, here is the trailer for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, director's cut. <laughs> Indianapolis, area 31 has traffic 2 o'clock, slightly above. Can you say aircraft type? Uh, negative, center. Uh, no distinct outline. Tell you the truth, the target is rather brilliant. Wait a second. He's heading right for my windshield. The traffic is approaching head-on. Altar right and really moving. And right by us, right now. That was really close. 31, do you wish to file a report of any kind of a- I I wouldn't know what kind of report to file, Senator. What do you want? I just want to know that it's... it's really happening. I recently had a close encounter. A close encounter with something very unusual. Who are you, people? Boys! One, two, three... I've been seeing this shape. Damn it! I know this. I know what this is. This means something. to find an answer. Yeah, so that features this great Indianapolis, can you tell us about the UFO bit in the um, in the thing. And that, do you remember the news yesterday? Have you heard about that? The drone in, you know, kind of speech marks. The the drone, supposed a drone, that shut down a airport in New York didn't it, for a couple of hours. I think it was around New York. Yeah. So that's good, isn't it? So anyway, there's the trailer. So what happens so he goes on this it begins with this fantastic um like set piece, I mean Spielberg really knows what he's doing, doesn't he? I mean he's a very, very accomplished filmmaker, and you know I'm not in love with all of his films, but there's a plenty of them that I am in love with, indeed yeah, and there Dr. Jones, and you know it starts with the whole film starts with this scene whereby there's all of these planes. Like in a perfect circle, and the planes have been missing for something like 40 years. They're World War Two planes, okay? It wouldn't be 40 years. It'd be 30 years, wouldn't it? World War Two planes. And I was like, oh, my God, these planes. These are the planes that were missing ages ago. And and then there's this ship that I mentioned, this incredible ship in the desert. And there's various uh, kind of occasions when um, Lacan, uh, pops up and in india this is really interesting because the india scene is on the way to the set in india where you've basically got this crowd of hundreds of people who are doing the uh, 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 um, in unison which is very powerful um on the way to the set spielberg uh, passed by a gasworks, I think some kind of like a gasworks or steelworks or something. Essentially this kind of big industrial, you know, kind of, uh, you know, factory or site, industrial site. And it was, it had lots of steel and like metal or like stinking out, stinking out, sticking out at jaunty angles. And it had loads and loads of lights, like colored lights all over it. And he was really taken by this image. And he had had this idea of having the mothership basically being like a like a frying pan, like a very black, um, you know, kind of uh, solid-looking, um, smooth, massive object that would just essentially kind of like black out the sky, you know? And he thought, oh, yeah, that'd be ominous. And obviously it's in the literature as well, you know, uh, craft like that, you know, like the Phoenix Lights or whatever. But um you, that would be ominous, wouldn't it? Like, imagine that. But then he saw this place. He thought, "What the hell am I thinking? I'm gonna like make it all l- like filled with lights, you know, and very odd kind of like appendages coming off it." So the uh, final, you know, design of the mothership was based on this steelworks or this gasworks or whatever it was. In, in India when he was shooting an in ear. So, you know, you got this Lacombe character popping up like left, right and centre, like Mr. Ben, basically. And um and then you go back to Roy Neary and his wife and his wife and his his wife gets a hard deal from this film, yeah? And his kids are slightly like all over the place. But, you know, they do I think they do get a hard deal because this guy is, like utterly obsessed and he keeps coming back to this image of a essentially like a kind of big tower, um, like a big natural kind of like a mountain with the top of it cut off basically. And he keeps, he's obsessing with this image. And also then there's another uh, woman that lives locally. Who's got a boy called Barry and the boy called Barry is about four years old. And Barry in a absolutely terrifying scene is abducted by well, the craft—you don't see any beings, but you know the craft is there, and it's like absolutely terrifying. I mean, it's very good cinema and incredibly effective. So Barry's mother is like distraught and still, and also going through this obsession with this uh, this kind of mountain-looking thing, and then they find out that there is a plan in place or sorry, we, I should say the audience find out that there is a plan in place to uh, communicate. And it's not, it's very well made because it's not like, you know, kind of spoon fed to us. You've got to like read between the lines. Like, I mean, very slightly, you know, it's not like the book of questions. Like it's not a massive puzzle, (laughs) but, um, but, um, What was I saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. But essentially, it's gearing up for a landing, okay? And the place where it's going to land is Devil's Tower in Wyoming, which is this weird-looking thing. like It's like this big pipe. I mean, you probably know because you've probably seen the film. And if you haven't seen the film, then just Google Devil's Tower, Wyoming. And so, luckily, your man, Roy Neary, only lives in Indiana, so he can just get in his car and drive. And so he does this, but the the way they realise that their image of this mountain is Devil's Tower is because the government have done this thing whereby they've said, "Oh, there's um, anthrax in the area. We've got to clear the area." And these, these extraordinary scenes. It's so cinematic. This film It is one of the most cinematic of all of the films. You know, I mean, it's right up there with. I don't know, like, you know, 2001, A Space Odyssey, it's a much better film than that, which I have always felt drags and is, you know, not engaging, essentially, you know, which uh, you kind of think if you're going to watch a movie, you're going to be engaged by it. And there's some parts of 2001 that I do think are incredible, but as a film overall, I think it's like highly flawed. But anyway, uh, you know, the, the cinematic quality of Close Encounters is second to none and so you've got these scenes of you know like mass um, you know people on the move like being kind of chucked out of their um, you know towns by the military and this huge clampdown of this massive area in order to facilitate a a landing okay and so this is the kind of what we're building up to okay There's this is incredible scene straight after the India scene which is amazing it's probably like the best five minutes of the. Well, it's difficult to say that because the end of Close Encounters is pretty good, <laughs> but the, the after the India scene, there's this incredible scene where Francois Truffaut's character, is Lecon, he is in a, at a conference, which is like it's not a conf, like a kind of exhibition type conference where people are dressed up as R two D two or whatever. Like it's a like a small meeting essentially in a conference room where about you know thirty people there. And he does the this kind of gesture, this hand gesture to go along with the five tones. Da, da 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 and it is just there's something about it, you know. I mean, I grew up with you know, um what is it called? Popeye Doyle. You know, I grew up with these films, you know what I mean? I'm that age that there's a, that these films, these films of the late 70s and the mid-70s into the kind of, you know, early 80s. That's my jam, man. This is my jam. Do you know what I mean? This is my jam. <laughs> so I love all that. And it's just the most beautiful filmmaking. It's right up my street. Yeah. And um, anyway, so so it gears towards this um you know uh, kind of psychological almost like a kind of political thriller essentially and spielberg has talked about how watergate's influence on american culture you know kind of sparked you know the parallax view and three days of the condor and these these political thrillers you know these conspiracy thrillers essentially whereby you know some one person knows the truth and the truth is the government is lying You know, and of course that resonates hugely in the UFO community because we have evidence, like you know, preponderance of evidence that uh, there have been cover up after cover up after cover up. You know, and the great thing about engaging the phenomenon interview with um, Jim Semivan, if I keep uh, referring to that, is that um, you know Semivan talks incredibly. There's some things he doesn't talk about, you know, he refuses point blank to talk about the um, Wilson uh, documents, for instance, the Eric Davis, Tom Wilson documents, which is interesting, you know. Um, And he also talks about, so anyway, it's really, really good. But this idea of, you know, like one person finding out the truth, which is uh, kind of goes against the government message you know, it's a it's a compelling idea and it was absolutely kind of like, you know, part of uh American culture in the in the seventies, obviously because of Watergate, yeah? So Spielberg wanted to get that into the film as well. So he sets up this thing, well, if there's gonna be a landing, it's gonna be have to be a place that is, you know, a landmark that is kind of unforgettable and you can't have people from the neighborhood, like popping over, do you know what I mean? So it kind of makes sense from the film point of view, but that's why it's in there, um, you know, because it's it then kind of goes into this uh, kind of one one guy against or this couple because he teams up with Barry, the four year old's mum, yeah. So this couple against the authorities, if you like. But what happens is that he finds that he go he does go there and he is arrested. And he's brought to this uh, kind of like base and um, Lacombe is there. He meets Lacombe for the first time. And there's a, there's a number of other people that have travelled across the country because they also have become obsessed with this like, you know, this telepathic or this deep-seated vision that they can't shake off of this of the Devil's Tower. Yeah? And... And um, Lacombe doesn't dismiss it. All of the military people are saying, you know, we've just got to get rid of them. We've got to kind of like fly them home. We've got to arrest them. We've got to make sure they get the hell out of the area. Come on, Lacombe. And he says, no, 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 no. This is interesting. Like like, uh, sociologically, this is interesting. Yeah. And um, it reminds me of this Jung thing. Um, Participation mystique. Participation mystique, which I'm looking into Jung at the moment because we've got an upcoming broadcast with Stephen. Yeah, Stephen's back. Yay, episode 26. Uh, quite soon. Yeah, pretty good. Huh? And um, we're going to be talking Jung. So I'm trying to Jung it out, you know. And um, anyway, Jung uh, adopted this phrase from this other dude back in the day who came up with this idea of participation mystique, which is basically a close connection with somebody or something. So these people, this is a very good example of participation mystique. These people have got participation mystique with the Devil's Tower. They are drawn, they don't know why, but they are drawn to it, very powerfully drawn to it. Okay? And all of them uh, have... You know, they haven't all abandoned their families, but they've certainly kind of come uh, from miles away to be at the Devil's Tower. And what happens is um, three of them go, like leave, including our two leads, obviously, Barry's mum and, and Roy Neary. And so they get to the site and they see the most extraordinary, uh, you know, uh, landing. So the mothership is is amazing. The other little, um, you know, UAPs are, are nice, you know, nice enough. And then what happens is that there's a reunion between the mum and the son, because the son is on the mothership. All of the pilots from the uh, planes that, you know, the World War II planes at the beginning of the film, they come off the film and they look a bit confused and dazed. And um, a few other people as well come off as well, I think, um, who are kind of like missing, they've been missing. And then, then it becomes incredible. I mean, up until now, it's really, you know, absolutely classic film, but then it jumps the, you know, jumps the shark, as it were, and it goes, it's stratospheric, to mix my metaphors, and you have this, amazing being that looks like part robot part uh puppet doesn't look human in any way um looks uncanny like really uncanny odd looking uh tall thin being that looks like it's he's welcoming humanity or it's very unclear communication between this massive like hundreds of people who are watching these like you know the the, the mothership doors open and all you can see is white lights and then being like you know the people come out of it the pilots and rivers come out of it and then this very odd-looking being comes out and then there are I don't know how many roughly 50 um. You know, small uh, beings, like you know, non-human beings, uh, come out of the um, of the mothership, and there are, I think it's seven, I think, um, pilots, all dressed in red, and the pilots, and um, what's his name, Spielberg talked about. What about if it was an exchange program? What about if there were some humans that were being prepared? to go on to the plane yeah so these pilots are all dressed in red and that's exactly what they do and Roy Neary joins them and all of these little they're kind of short they look very childlike heights and also the way that they act is very childlike these non-human beings they lead Roy Neary onto the um onto the mothership and then one of these uh, kind of childlike non human beings uh, comes out and uh, kind of like addresses silently, acknowledges, I should say, really, the uh, kind of adults running this thing, including um, Lacombe. And this uh, creature is just amazing. It's, uh, you know, a kind of puppet essentially that was made for the occasion. And they called him Puck after the uh, Dickens character. And a Lacombe does the hand gestures to Puck, and Puck does the hand gestures back. And it is, you know, cinema history. That's basically what it is. That's what we're talking about here. Eh? We're talking about cinema history. It is just the most extraordinary, beautiful uh, scene. The whole, I mean, like, you know, it's unusual to find a film, and there are some films that I think are, well, frankly, better than Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but it's unusual to find a film where you can't have it, there's no fault in it. I think the one thing, right? having said that, I'm now going to give you the fault, the one thing I think that I think is a bit too light, because this is a heavy movie, yeah? It's about heavy stuff, and it takes its um, you know the experiences that people have. Seriously, it has reverence for the experiences and the end. You know, the, he shows awe on the faces of the witnesses. Yeah, it's very clearly a a, a deeply serious film about this about this subject matter. Yeah. And it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant for it. And it's virtually perfect in that regard, except for there's a scene, which is actually quite a kind of confronting challenging scene whereby um, Richard Dreyfuss is so obsessed. He's um, taken all of the plot plants out of the uh, kind of garden and chucking them through a small window of his house yeah and his wife uh like totally freaked out by it so she gets the kids in the car and she drives off she says i'm going to my sister and she drives off and the music i mean i love uh, john williams and you know john w- like the, the music of close encounters i mean it's famous you know what i mean i've put it in the this show enough it's incredible and jaws is in there oh Thank you for reminding me, by the way, When You Wish Upon the Star. They do include When You Wish Upon the Star in the kind of like final section, the landing section, which is really nice. Actually, it's when um, Roy goes onto the, onto the ship, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, but this, this scene where he's putting the pot plants through the little window and his wife leaves, for some inexplicable reason, the music is far too jolly. It's far too light. It's far too light. You know, there's this kind of like, oh, isn't it funny that he's having a like mental breakdown crisis? You know, it's not funny at all. So get it together, Johnny. Come on, Johnny, boy. He's doing, um, he's still working, that guy. What the hell is wrong with him? How old is he? He's like 90 or something, isn't he? And he's doing the music for the fifth Indiana Jones film. That is not a good idea to make that film. Um having said that, I think that someone I know is in it, so maybe it is a good idea. <laughs> uh yeah. Anyway, um so there we go. So that's so apart from the music in the, when you watch it and or re-watch it again, then you know, maybe I'm wrong, but apart from the music when um Roy Neary is putting all of the pop pot plants. And he kind of, like, he goes through the window as well. And it's just a bit too kind of playing it for laughs, you know? And I don't need that, thank you very much. It's about a deeply serious, like, absolutely incredible, mysterious, like, impossible-to-get-your-head-around phenomena. So I don't need plinky-plonky, laughy music. And I think also slightly, I mean, I love... um, Richard Dreyfuss and he's absolutely outstanding in this film I mean it's absolutely brilliant but I also do think that he was goofing around a little bit in that scene you know so yeah I could I probably would change that if I if I had the ability which I definitely don't have then I then I probably would change that 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 scene but having said that apart from that it's perfect and it's definitely you know a, a deeply brilliant Work of art, and uh, after it was released, um, it dawned on Richard Dreyfus that if Close Encounters of the Third Kind had come out before Star Wars, then he thinks, and I'm inclined to agree, that uh, the way that we look at sci fi in the film, in films at least. Um, because sci-fi and books is a totally different thing, and I've never really been able to access that, even though I've got some of the classics that I've never read, like Foundation and stuff. But, um, you know, and a friend of mine, actually, who I asked to make a list of books for me, and she did, and she put on another classic sci-fi book that I've not yet read. Not yet read. Anyway, um, but in terms of movies... Dreyfus says that if uh, Close Encounters came out before Star Wars, then it would be interesting, you know, what would happen next. Would we have, like, loads and loads of serious sci-fi films? And we do have Arrival. We do have Midnight Special. You know, we obviously uh, had, you know, in 1968, was it, uh, 2001, but, you know, although there's um, merit to, I mean, I love all those Marvel movies, you know, and it's very interesting. I mean, you think about all of the kind of concepts that we talk about in the kind of UAP world um, in terms of interdimensions and, and, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, it's that that's what the biggest movies ever are about. you know what I mean? Which is a bit nuts to kind of get your head around, you know. Um, having said that, there is obviously a kind of like cartoony comic booky feel to those things. I mean, they are comic book movies, aren't they? Yeah. And star Wars as well is, is very good fun. I mean, the story of that with, um, uh, what's his name? That dude that, uh, Lucas spoke to Joseph Campbell, you know, um, you know, so Lucas didn't just kind of, you know, uh, make it up, it's like all very um based on myth and all of that, you know, very, very interesting. But uh, you know, although those things because they've been in our culture for thousands of years, it means that Darth Vader is such a good baddie and blah blah blah. Uh having said that, you know, it is essentially a knockabout kids film. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not close encounters of the third kind, you know? And I like Star Wars. But I'm not a massive Star Wars head, and I would far rather watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind than Star Wars. I mean, there's no question about it. They're like, they're incomparable movies to be, you know? One of them is a great film starring uh, a lovely actor. Lovely actor! (laughs) And the other one is um, Close Encounters, yeah! Anyway, so there we go. So there's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Now, what am I going to say next? Oh yeah, next we have got The Archive. So, but first of all, we've got The Blomps. So The Archive this week is a snippet of an interview with your man Spielberg, and he talks about high uh, neck, And um, what's the name of the... Uh, giraffe, who's really interested in researching UFOs, Heineck it's a good joke, isn't it, yeah, and uh, here it is. Now, you, you work with J. Allen Heineck mm-hmm. At what point did you consult him, and how much did he influence you in, in, in writing this, the screenplay? Well, the screenplay was written and, and, and uh, ready to shoot before I met Dr. Heineck and uh, Dr. Heine kind of met me because I had uh, uh, called the picture Close Encounters of the Third Kind thinking that because Dr. Heine had written a a uh, non-fiction book almost a uh, a newspaper account of different experiences throughout the country that it would be okay to use his title but it wasn't and Dr. Heine called me and said "No, that's my title and we got together and met in Chicago and liked each other immediately and I said could you be the technical advisor uh, on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which he was very happy to do. And then then he read the script and showed me some errors I had made uh, where things were maybe stretching the imagination of uh, UFO buffs a little too far. And he, uh, from that moment on, he became our, our aide and confidant and consultant. So that's a nice interview, isn't it? And you can find that in the episode description. So first of all, now, I need to say to you, all of you, if you're sitting down, please stand up, because I have to say thank you for listening. Now we've got this plan, Stephen and I, to do an episode in next um, within the next week, I'd say. So hopefully it'll be up within like maybe this time next Friday. Let's uh, you know pencil that in, will you, please? And am going to be talking Jung and symbolism. So this is a very interesting area, which I'm. Um, you learning about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that should be fun. Now, in the meantime, follow me on Twitter, at uh, Paranormal Blip, at Paranormal Blip. And also there's an Instagram account that I haven't checked for weeks. But if you want to do that, if you're on Instagram, then it's Paranormal underscore Blip underscore podcast. But Twitter is the place where I'm far more active. And there's a lot of excellent content out there at the moment by, you know, not only... James Yandoli, but you know, there's all of the guys that you that you know that I love and listen to and follow, uh, Witness Citizen and uh, that UFO podcast and Disclosure Team and all of those guys doing some excellent work, and um, yeah, there's lots of really interesting interviews happening at the at the moment, and it feels like you know with this uh, kind of the bills that are being written, and this new—at uh, uh, least the kind of Twitter account and the, and the statement, uh, the um, you know press release for this new office arrow—it feels like things are kind of happening a little bit, don't they? Yeah, it's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, listen. Thanks ever so much for listening, and see you later.